Dear friends in Christ, there was a time when astronomers really loved looking up into the sky beyond our planet, and it's a time when they really love it the most, and it's called good seeing. It's an actual term. And that's when the Earth's atmosphere is calm and it's free of dust as much as possible. Sometimes they can be down on an ocean level where the waters just come and the winds come below, and other times they have to go up to the highest mountains, to the very top of a sky that's clear enough to enable them to see sharp and stable images of heavenly bodies. And what fascinates a number of astronomers today, both backyard ones and also those that get into the observatories, is a star that sits at the very center of our solar system, the sun. And they study the sun because it's the origin of virtually all the energy that supports life here on Earth. It's the source of our weather, it's the controller of the climate, and it's our closest connection to the processes that power the universe. Now, last week, I got a chance to watch on TV the NASA liftoff. It was a rocket that was sent into space. The solar orbiter is what it's called. And it will travel as close as 26 million miles away from the sun. Now, we're like around 93, so that's pretty close. And it's inside the orbit even of Mercury. And there it's going to measure the magnetic fields, the waves, the energetic particles, and even the plasma escaping from the sun. A scientist, Goran Sharmer, he said the sun is the Rosetta Stone of astrophysics. But it's a stone that we haven't yet been able to decrypt entirely. And although we know the sun's been burning for many, many years, it's only in about the last two decades that scientists have begun to understand it. There's nothing boring about this ball of light. The sun has a halo-like corona around it, which, oddly enough, is hundreds and even thousands of times hotter than its surface. One of the mysteries of the sun is an event called a coronal mass ejection. And that's when billions of tons of charged particles escape from the sun's corona, and they dump trillions of watts of energy and power actually get into the Earth's upper atmosphere even. They can overload power lines, they can cause massive blockouts, and destroy delicate instruments on satellites that are in Earth orbit. You might say, as we look at our reading, that James, Peter, and John, they're in search of good seeing. And that's what happens when they follow up Jesus to the top of the high mountain on that day of transfiguration. They climb up there, and at the peak, Jesus is transfigured before them, and his face shines like the sun. And through the power of God, Jesus undergoes a metamorphosis, a change in form, a transformation, and he begins to glow with a glow that's reserved for the heavenly beings out there. His face shines like the sun, sending off really a blast of brightness that is, we could say, is positively out of this world. There's no sunspots or solar flares. There's no coronal mass ejections that could really surprise the disciples more than what they saw here. They know that a glowing human face is a radically rare event. Do you remember Moses? In Exodus 34, it says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant, that were the law that were in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant. 
because he had spoken with the Lord. He had been up there on that mountain. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come even near him. Moses, we know, had to put a veil over his face. So when he would come down talking from God, people wouldn't focus on that. Instead, they would focus on the words that God was to share with the people through Moses. He had a real close encounter with God. And like astronomers who struggle to unlock the secrets of the sun, the disciples, they realized that they're now in a place where they had not been before. But the fiery brilliance of Jesus' face, it's only the beginning. Because what happens? Well, suddenly Moses and Elijah, they appear, and they're talking with Jesus. The disciples are starstruck. They see the ministry of Jesus as the continuation and the the culmination of the mighty acts of God through history. Moses and Elijah, they're like sacred supernovas. They're bright lights, and they were able to work amazing miracles through God working through them. They were the ones who had promised God's covenant and law. And they even faced rejection by the people before they were vindicated by God. And now they're standing on the mountain, speaking to Jesus. The three of them, they form a type of divine dream team here. One that can radiate the awesome power of God to the world. And the first thing that Peter says is what? Lord, it is good to be here. Peter finally gets adjusted to that brightness before him. And then he says, if you wish, I'll make three shelters or dwellings here. One for you one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now you might say, well, that's not the smartest suggestion for Peter to make at this point. But think again. Peter is actually showing good spiritual sense here because he knows that a dwelling, a shelter, is also called a tabernacle. And it's the best possible place to keep the fiery cloud that marks the presence of God. If you remember the tabernacle in the wilderness, There was that curtain there, and they could see the the, the smoke, the presence of God, even in the temple, to know that he was with them. Well, Peter is not talking about building three tents for them to stay there on that mountain. He wants to construct three holy tabernacles to house that divine glory that's glowing before him. So his offer is really quite appropriate here. In a day of supernatural surprises, we see a lot going on. But before Peter can really even get started in building anything, there's a bright cloud that overshadows them, and a voice comes down and says this, This is my son, the beloved, or whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now that really blows away the disciples at this point. It hits them with the intensity of a solar flare, an explosion above the sun's surface that roars when tens of millions of degrees are thrown off and there's like surges of powerful radiation. For the sun itself, solar flares are nothing to scoff at. They can interrupt communications, they can disable those satellites, as I mentioned, or the instruments, and they can theoretically even kill an astronaut who would be spacewalking at the time. Here, with Jesus, the disciples, they fall down to the ground, overcome with fear now. 
God has appeared in power and glory. And he's spoken now directly to them, repeating the words that were spoken at the baptism of Jesus. The only addition here is God's clear command to them. Listen to him. Any doubt that the disciples had about Jesus is instantly erased here. They know that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus, who has blazed before them in majesty and glory, he reaches out to them and he offers them a surprising, tender touch. He says, get up and do not be afraid. And when they look up now, because their faces are down to the ground, they see Jesus himself alone. And once they hear the voice of Jesus, the disciples raise their eyes, and as if all the prior channels of revelation through the law and the prophets were now focused into this one Lord, one who is divinely wise. He's the one who can divinely comfort those people and others. There's only one person they need to listen to. And they don't need to fear. It's widely held that the presence of the lawgiver Moses and the prophet Elijah in the transfiguration, it served to show that Jesus' teachings had the same level authority as the Hebrew scriptures, which were even spoken about in Matthew 7, verse 12, as Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. The final three words that were spoken by God, that heavenly voice, make it clear. Listen to him. What does it mean to listen to him? Well, think about the last moments that Jesus was with his disciples before he ascended up into heaven. And you'll get some of these words repeated here too. Jesus says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets, and even the Psalms. And there he opened their minds so that they can understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins, that's going to be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And the disciples did that. They did listen to him. And they stayed there in Jerusalem for ten more days until that great day of Pentecost. And those words got fulfilled. The Holy Spirit came in power. And the Jews from all around the world there, they came from every nation, and they heard the gospel. So beginning at Jerusalem those apostles would be witnesses of all the things that Jesus did. Now, on the way down from the mountain there, Jesus also orders them not to tell anybody about the vision until after he's been raised from the dead. So after he has suffered and died and been raised on that third day. So clearly there are some major storms that are yet ahead for Jesus, the one who is the son loved by his father. The day of transfiguration was clearly a day of good seeing. Like modern scientists, the disciples were getting an unobstructed view of the source of our energy, a clear look at the closest connection that we have to the power of the universe, and that is Jesus himself. As the Apostle Paul said to the Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For in Jesus, all things in heaven and on earth were created. All things have been created through him and for him. And like the sun that blazes up in the sky, Jesus is the only source of our life and light on this earth. But this mountaintop experience is more than just a story about the glory of Jesus. It would be wrong to just picture Jesus as a serene and an untouchable ball of divine power, one who's floating above the sky, above all the trials and troubles and temptations of this world. We know that Jesus very clearly is the one who will have to deal with heartbreak and agony. He'll have to deal with struggle and suffering in the coming days. He'll even have to endure floggings and mockings and an agonizing death on a cross. The very same face that is shining like the sun on this day of transfiguration, well, that's going to be the face that is kissed by Judas, the one who betrayed him. It's going to be the same face that is spit upon and, and slapped by perhaps scribes and elders and those Roman soldiers. The abuses and the agonies that Jesus faced are hard for us to comprehend. And what's even more, it's more difficult for us to accept what he had to go through for us. But they were all anticipated by Jesus even on this day of transfiguration because he knows all things. He's the source of our energy. He is the connection to power. But he also experiences heartbreak and agony and struggle and suffering. Somehow these contradictory pieces all come together in Christ. And the link between these shattered fragments is found in verse 7 when Jesus goes and he touches the disciples and he says, Get up and do not be afraid. Suddenly, the greatest power in the universe is concentrated in a loving touch. The image of the invisible God is seen in the face of a caring man. The source of all light and life on the earth is revealed to be Jesus of Nazareth, the one who walks with us down the mountain also and stays with us through all of our hardships. He's the one who is reminding that God is with us. He is always with us. And he will never let us go. Get up and do not be afraid, people. That's what the mightiest power in the universe says to us when we're frustrated by our own failures, when we are ransacked by broken relationships, when we're perhaps depressed in mental or physical or perhaps even spiritual ways. Jesus says, get up. I am offering you life and light in your life. I'm offering you new life because that's what I give to you, he says. The marvelous promise of the resurrection that we look forward to celebrating in a number of weeks is that there is always new life to be found on the other side of suffering and even death. Do not be afraid, counsels Jesus. I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to assure you of the presence of God in your life. Because if we remember Paul's words in Galatians 2.20, he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The greatest guarantee of Christ's companionship is that nothing in all creation, 
no pain, no crying, no suffering or even death can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So keep looking up. Jesus is our light and our life. He's our bright morning star. He alone is the one who can lead us and guide us, even through a storm, solar or not. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all of our understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, who is your Lord and Savior. Amen.